And now, coming to you from deep in the North Pacific subtropical gyre, lost in the Great Pacific garbage patch, but trying to find our way home, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf on the Kuchu Podcast. And we're here in the garbage patch. We should reach it. We're garbage pail kids. It reminds me of of a story by Cat Valenti, which you published, I believe. Future is blue. It's the best Pacific garbage patch science fiction story yet written, but then again, maybe the only one. The great story, the story of the great Tetlia Bednagar. Yes. This is the title story on her new collection that's coming out in a couple of months from Subterranean Press, The Future is Blue, and other stories, I presume. And I recommend that. And she is also about any day now, in theory, I mean, there are reasons it might delay it, but any day now, about to deliver to me a great big sequel novella that I'm really looking forward to. Sequel to The Future is Blue? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we just announced it this week. Excellent. Well, that'll be fun. Yes, I know. I've been all about reading, you know, sort of, you know, sort of novellas at the moment and just read a new one from Alistair Reynolds that he delivered the other week, which is terrific and I like a great deal and I'm very happy with. And I'm signing up all new ones and they're sort of coming out in announcements. You know? So it's, it's good, good times for novellas. For me. So the novella, the novella Renaissance is showing no signs of abating. Well, I mean, it's, it's that classic thing, you know, Gary. I mean, if you think about it, if you create a market for something, then you will bring more work into existence. It's always been the case, right? So mm-hmm. part of the reason that there's a novella exist, uh, Renaissance is because there's a belief on behalf of publishers that they can find an audience for them. They mm-hmm. are finding an audience for them, partly because of very clever publishing. I mean, the program at Tor.com, the program at some of the major indies like Subterranean and PS mm. and wherever else at Tachyon have been really well done. And that's led people who are looking to, to find, I think, the equivalent to an old paperback book to find the kind of reads they want that are in the sort of 20, 30, 40, 50, 60,000 word range. You know, stories like you know, the, the freeze frame resolution, uh, revolution, the Peter Watts story that's coming out any time now. Yeah. You know, uh, these kind of things, you know, the, the Netty, uh, the Core of Fours, Binti books, they are in many ways akin to a really nicely packaged paperback. And so right. pe- people are using those as a path in. And in fact, I suspect that for new writers, if you could find a way to produce a really nice paperback like that at about half the current price, you would have a great way of building the names and reputations of new writers, you know. Do you think the business of novella series, which is an interesting idea, I mean, it's not unknown, but you mentioned the three Binti um, novellas, the, the third of which is, is now up for the Hugo, voting is now open, we should mention that. And you mentioned that there's a novella sequel to, to Catherine Valenti's The Future is Flu. Is, th- is, this, is this going to be a trend where we get series of novellas uh, that, that in, the, in the case of the Binti trilogy, the whole trilogy is the size of one novel, basically. Yeah. I like that myself because it's you know, when you commit to a trilogy, you're not committing to 2,100 pages of something. I think, okay, first of all, I think yes. I absolutely think so, and I think you can see it. There are novella series that are being published, particularly by Tor.com right now. They're the most obvious, most prolific novella publishers. So if we keep de- defaulting to them as an example, it's not because they're the only one. But if you look at the Murderbot stories, you know, that's a series <laughs> of novellas. If you look at J.Y. J. Wang's, series of novellas, and just three of those now. Uh, mm-hmm. I think Sean and Maguire has done three or four for Tor.com as well. You can see why. But also, like, if you think back, right, 
we're doing it overtly now, and it's mirroring what happens with you know series books, right? People want more of the same story. It gives a, you know, a writer a chance to experiment with a story and see if it's going to work. It gives the publisher a chance to experiment with something and see if it's going to find a home. But it's not entirely new. I mean, Foundation wasn't much more than a series of novellas slapped into, into one set of uh, covers anyway, was it? Oh, true. And The Voyage of the Space Beagle was a series of three purely mm. connected novellas by Van Gogh. Uh, so it's not a new thing. It used to be a necessity, though. It used to the foundation stories had to be published in magazines because there were basically no pulp science fiction book publishers at the time he was writing them in the early 40s. So that was a necessity. In other words, the early science fiction novels, Sturgeon's More Than Human is two novellas and one that he wrote especially for the book. But those were necessity. This is choice. This is something that writers prefer to do. And it's almost as though they're reinventing that sort of a series mentality that that used to dominate some of the pulp magazines. You know, I, I, I think there could be some truth to that. I, I certainly know of a couple of examples where writers either are or are about to try experimenting with different work just because the form is available. You know, where you have a writer who maybe, let's say, for example, you've got a writer who has a very successful series. Let's imagine James Corey, right, who's got a super successful okay. expanse series. And imagine, this isn't the case, so it's a fictional example, that um, Ty and Daniel together wanted to try something different, a magic realist story or something. Mm-hmm. It's going to run against their primary commercial uh, model, you know, the series they're running. So what they mm-hmm. do is they package it up into these bite-sized pieces they can experiment with at, to one side. Something that can find readers, maybe find different new readers uh, without interfering with what's happening with the main thrust of what they're doing. You can see the logic of it. Uh, and I think that's attracting a few people. I know, as I say, there's a project I've got in the, that I won't mention here that is in the background mm-hmm. that very much falls into that category. And I'm, you know, I think it's really attractive. I also think it's a way to potentially, and I wish I could persuade a few people to write these, to revive things that were successful once before. You know, so uh-huh. I, you know, I can imagine if let, let's say you've got a series that has been successful back in the 80s or the early 90s and it had come to a bit of closure, but you want to find a way to revive it or to find time to do it. Writing a 20,000 word piece is much less of an investment for a writer than writing an 80,000 word or 100,000 word piece, right. time wise in many cases, not for all writers, but for many. And so that's another way back. So there's all kinds of things that attract and draw writers to want to write these novellas and to have them come out. And it helps that probably they are being as well marketed as they ever have in the history of the field, which makes them very attractive. I think from the point of view of a reader, I could add another advantage to novellas. Uh, And using a specific example that I feel bad about, I feel bad that I missed, I've not to this day read Dave Hutchinson's Europe uh, at Midnight Europe series. so when Acadia came out as a novella, I wanted to see what he was up to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was delightful. It was, it, was a, it was enough to make me realize, okay, I really need to read those novels now. I really want to read more by this writer. Uh, because a novella is long enough to give you a sense that there's a sustained story. There's a bit of world building, maybe not too much. But, um, but the, the attractiveness, the... the, the Features that make a, a, an author attractive to a reader like me can be reached in a novella with a short story you're not quite sure. Uh, you, you can see some very impressive short stories, but you don't know what somebody's going to quite do at a greater length. Um, good example of that 
would be a writer we both uh, have a great deal of admiration for and who's been on the podcast, Sam J. Miller. I read stories like Things with Beards. I read you know, stories that uh, had, had won awards. I didn't know what the art of starving was going to be like, and I certainly had no, except for one story, no real sense of what Blackfish City was going to be like. But had I read a novella earlier on, I think I would have had a sense both of what the short fiction and the long fiction might look like. I think probably as well in defense of the novella form, and I know we're not criticizing it. It's also you know, more than that, if you like, or it's other than that as well. It, it is a great sampler for uh, readers. It is a great experimental ground for writers. But it's also its own intrinsic thing. The great novellas of the history of the field are all mm-hmm. their own strong, you know, identifiable things, their own form. And you see that with the modern era of novella as well. I think ones that really stand out are the ones that are just intrinsically themselves. They're not trying to be a sampler taste or something else. Right. Sometimes, you know, sometimes, like I say, as as with, I think, Binti from what Nettie uh, Korifor was saying on the show here before, you know, it's experimenting with something new for her a little bit and then it really works. But, you know, Mm -hmm. when, when say someone like Ellen Clay just writes Passing Strange, when, um, Caitlin Kiernan writes Agents of Dreamland, when Kids Johnson writes the you know, Dream Quest of Vallebo. These are stories that are inherently themselves as well, rather than just, just a taster, and I know you're not saying they're just, but just a taster for what else the writer could do. I think it's true, and I think the other thing that's uh, intriguing to me about novellas is the what I would consider the measured degree of world building that goes into it. You mentioned the original Binti, for example, and and Nettie wanted to write a story set on a spaceship. It was something she wanted to try. And parts of it early on seemed uh, derivative a little bit of of alien movies, of space adventure things. There's some really horrifying uh, terror scenes early in the uh, novella. And the novella takes a shape of its own, which I don't think she even quite expected it to do. Uh, but it's not an entire galactic background. There's, we don't get much of the history of the space program. We, we know that there's a university over there on UMA, and everybody wants to go to it. There is no sense and uh, no sense of need in reading that, that she should have spent two or 300 pages explaining uh, how this space program came to be, why the university is there, and so forth and so on. I've never, I very seldom read a novella. This is going to sound mean to some writers. I very seldom read a novella that I wanted to be a novel. I very often read a novel that I wanted to be a novella. Oh, I have. I've, I've read novellas I wanted to be novels, without a doubt. Really? Yeah. Um, and in fact, I'll go further. I've edited a novella that, in retrospect, I feel strongly should have been a novel. So, you know. It, it, I guess it also depends on the kind of thing it is. Sometimes these stories, the stories that you tend to want to be longer, not always true, Mm -hmm. but often true, are ones that are immersive. And that's the great attraction of epic fantasy, immersion. Um, I guess so. Or one of the great attractions. Um, With with novellas, you don't get that same level of immersion. You get more of it than you do from a short story. You get a certain degree of a greater degree of I don't want to say complexity because that's really not fair to a short story at all or accurate. But you certainly you get you get more. Um, you get maybe multiple plot lines, different you know different settings, whatever else. Uh, a greater examination of the themes are, that, that are in the work. 
those sorts of things, they come out at greater length. But, you know, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting that something, how people are using novellas as well. As well. I mean, I'm fascinated by Lois Master Bourgeois publishing her own novellas. You'd be aware mm-hmm. she's published four now, I think, in the series that was originally that the series of fantasy novels were published by Harp Rios um. back in the day of the Five Worlds series. And I, you know, the impression I get is they've done fabulously well. You know, she's done really, really well. And now she's releasing a Verkosigan uh, novella. And I mm-hmm. would be genuinely shocked if Bain, her, the normal publisher for uh, Verkosigan, would not be extremely happy to publish that themselves. And I'm sure anybody else would be. It's just I would hope found so. another path. Uh, well, you, you mentioned another advantage of novellas, because when you talk about Bujold or you talk about writers who have long, successful ongoing series, you mentioned James S.A. Corey, we could mention C.J. Cherry, they can write more novels and find more readers for their novels, but also there's always a sense when you have somebody with that long a list of successful books, how do I get into this world without going back to the beginning? And a novella can be a way of introducing new readers to a world without making them commit to reading 14 novels to get up to speed. It certainly can be, and that's very true. So, But, you know, novellas, novellas. I mean, my, 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 the one that I've edited most recently that's coming out now, that's out, in fact, is in McDonald's uh-huh. Time Was, which I've talked about before, and which, if you're listening to the podcast and you haven't actually purchased and read, you should pause the recording now and jump onto your favorite online or offline retailer and go buy a copy because it's fabulous. It's fabulous in a different way. I've, I've already reviewed it, and I don't know if the review's out or not. One of the things I did add to this, and it's probably something we said before, is that uh, for all the attention that he's getting deservedly for uh, his, his Luna series, his earlier series of uh, international futures with India, Turkey, Brazil – he can really write a beautiful line of prose. And I think that may be the other thing that works with a novella, uh, because there was a lot going on in uh, Jeffrey Ford's novella, The Twilight Pariah, that gives him a chance, in the case of the Jeffrey Ford uh, story, um, to take a fairly familiar ghost story and write it beautifully with interesting characters. The same, something of the same thing goes on with Time Was, which is a, yeah. essentially a kind of time travel romance, but it's gorgeously yeah. written. It is. Uh, and I've got about 20,000 words of excerpted text from it that drives me crazy because I wish that everybody could see that stuff too. So there's a... Okay, we've, we, we've established the fact that people should read novellas. And, the, uh, and the, okay, one last thing. Sometimes when I'm trying, and you must get asked this often, what should I read next? I get emails because of this lecture series I did. I got an email yesterday saying... What are the top 10 science fiction novels you would recommend to anybody starting? Which is a question that we all hate. Um, what I've done in the past is send people, try to find out what they're interested in, and then send them to novellas. Because the chances are you won't give up on a novella. If, 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 if I choose the wrong book to recommend to somebody, they'll yeah. get halfway through it and they won't finish it. If I wanted to do, uh, somebody was interested in time travel, I might send them to something like, Vintage season, or these days I might send them to something like uh, Time Was. But the fact is, you can bring new readers into the field and have them test the waters without having them give up. You know, the, the number of students I've had over the years 
who I recommended books to, and they came back and said, I got halfway through it, and I like this, but I didn't like that, and they just couldn't keep up with it. Mm-hmm. There's a thing going on with attention span, and I think another thing that works with this is that novellas work very well on audiobooks, and they work very well online. You yeah. don't really need to have a print copy in front of you. Well, I mean, I actually think that's partially true. I think, actually, that novellas don't work that well online. Really? And I think that's that's why... We, why we've seen them segue off into ebook and print. I think there's something about that greater length. I mean, reading nothing to 10,000 words or so is kind of fine on a computer screen if you have to. But having something that you can hold, you know, wheels across to, to, to the bookshelf, you know, hold in your hand, you know, and read. It, it, it's a much, to me, more satisfying. Same uh, on a you know, an e-reader where it's designed for, for that. You know, yeah, so I it think is. there's a satisfaction in having having those off websites and elsewhere, even though there's some great websites publishing them and there's some great novellas available in that form. And there, there, yeah, and there's a lot of stuff available online that um, you don't necessarily know going into it what you're going to get into. I, this has happened to me before. Even though I, somebody will label something as a novella, do you ever have the experience of starting a story in a venue, and this this is something I learned to do as a teenager when I started reading, reading The New Yorker. The New Yorker magazine formerly never had a table of contents. You never had the author's name at the beginning of a piece. So you'd have a title and you'd begin reading, and it was up to you, the reader, to figure out whether this is fiction or nonfiction, whether this is a... You might be reading the whole issue. You might be reading Truman Capote's In Cold Blood or John Hersey's Hiroshima, and you didn't know that until you were into it. In other words, it's a kind of classic test of how much a piece of writing can draw you in. And one of the things that I find fascinating when I get a Kindle book, for example, where you don't know where the pages are unless you do something that I don't know how to do with Kindle, I'll start reading something. I have no idea whether this is going to be a novella or a short story or a short, short story or uh, the, the, you know, the length is not clear to me. And there's some sense of liberation in that there's some sense of starting a piece of writing and just daring the writer to keep you reading even though you don't know how far you're going to go with that that's true I mean, that's true but, but, but i mean there's also that same thing uh same sensation i think anytime when you free a story be it novel or whatever else from the context that it would be published in, you know, like when you read an advanced review copy or whatever else. I mean, one of the reasons I always read fiction submissions on my Kindle is it makes it look like a published book as much as possible. Yeah, it does. Getting a manuscript pile is such a different thing. Tell you, you know, one of the, this is a segue. I want you to watch, watch, okay. watch me segue. One of the great novellas of, of the, in the history of the field is Gene Wolfe's Seven American Nights. You'll remember yes. the story. That's a fabulous story. Published in 1978, making it, if my math isn't completely terrible, 40 years old this, this year. So at the 40th anniversary of Seven American Nights, and tomorrow is the 87th birthday of Gene Wolfe, Grandmaster of the Field. I should have known that. Well, you are, you're, he, you're like his friend. You like know him. Like well, I mean, I, 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 I was at his last birthday party at, at, at Terry's house out in the western suburbs, and he was at the, at the time, and I assume, I don't know if he's finished, working on the sequel to... A Borrowed Man. Um, mm-hmm. And and we argue, I said he should change the title. I'll find out sooner or later if he did. But um, 
he is an, he's one of the wonders of the field. I mean, he's astonishingly sharp and, and original and doing things unlike he's done before. Um, and we don't know where this is going to go, but we know that there's, there's going to be another Gene Wolfe novel sometime soon. 87, that's astonishing. It is. Actually, let me ask you this question, because this is really unfair. Uh, given that, as, I mean, I realize everyone who's listening, all 11 of you, hello, I have no idea that we make this up as we go along, so they feel as though there's a possibility there's been some assiduous preparations when I ask you this question. You will have a scripted answer ready to go. And the question would be, why or oh why would a 20-something reader today pick up a Gene Wolfe book? I'm not sure. Well, okay, there are two answers to that. One is there are 20-something readers who like the challenge of long-form fantasies. So, they, so, so, so the Book of the New Sun, that whole thing could be attractive simply because of its scope. I don't know if there are very many 20-somethings who are interested in unreliable narrators, on layers of memory that are played upon one another and that sort of thing. But uh, I would guess that if you mention something like Seven American Nights or go back uh, to The Fifth Head of Cerberus, those are the kinds of fictions that uh, I mentioned earlier that draw you in. You don't know what's going on in them. The deeper you get into them, the more you begin to suspect you might know what's going on, but you don't know everything that's going on. So a very bright 20-something-year-old, uh, starting with the right Gene Wolfe book, and I would not probably start with the Book of the New Sun, but Seven American Nights is a good example. Um, I think The Fifth Head of Cerberus is a good example. I even think uh, some of his less known and forgotten books, like Pandora by Holly Hollander, mm-hmm. would draw in younger readers in an intriguing way because... <clears throat> there's very clearly from the beginning of any Gene Wolfe novel something going on uh, beneath the surface. And there are two ways of reading a Gene Wolfe novel. One is to read simply what happens on the surface. You can read The Wizard Knight, and it works pretty pretty well as just a kind of uh, tribute to classic fantasies. An inch below the surface, it's a Gene Wolfe novel. And you can't ignore the fact that there's that subtext, and you want to know what the subtext is. Um, we had a we we joked once. We jo- go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, you continue. I think we joked once on the podcast, or I, maybe I I said this on the podcast, or maybe we said it to him on the podcast that he could write a Star Wars novel or a Star Trek novel. Um, and I, I remember the conversation. He said, "I bet you think I couldn't." And I thought, "Oh my God, he might." Oh, no, and I on the good. Uh, on the surface, it would be a perfectly fine Star Wars or Star Trek novel. And an inch below the surface, there would be this Gene Wolfe novel, which you know is lurking there, and you want to find out what it really is. I want to unpack the idea that it's useful to talk about Gene Wolfe in that way. And I'll tell you why. First of all, one, I think Gene Wolfe is brilliant, and I unreservedly recommend him to just about anybody who wants to read a book. So that's the first mm-hmm. thing. And none of what we're talking about is in any sense undermining the fact that he is a spectacular writer who has produced a marvelous oeuvre of work that richly deserves everyone's attention. That's not the point of question. Nor is it about the somewhat entertaining and puzzling idea that if you ask Gene Wolfe about Gene Wolfe, the writer, he would describe himself like Spike, the beloved entertainer. He's just doing mm-hmm. it for shits and giggles, right? Right. That said, if you set aside this almost in- intimidating idea of a Gene Wolfe novel lurking below the surface of a novel, there is 
an array of fabulously entertaining stories to be read, whether it be at novel length or shorter, that absolutely totally repay somebody spending time. I mean, whether it's a book, I mean, you mentioned Pandora by Holiday Hollander, which I really enjoyed, or An Evil Guest, or Pirate Freedom, or Peace, which is perhaps a little bit more abstract, or The Fifth Head of Cerberus, or the Wizard Knight novels. I mean, I will say, I think that the crowning uh, achievement of his career, the solar cycle, is at times more obviously intimidating. I found I had to have three or four goes at Shadow of the Torture before I finally was able to find my way through it as a text. But the Latro books, Soldier of the Mist, Soldier of Arete, those books, fabulously engaging. And I think there's an enormous case to be made. I mean, I, I realize that I have you know, skin in the game, if you like, as a short fiction mm-hmm. editor, that short fiction actually is the place to find Gene Wolfe first. Start with I the agree. island of Dr. Death and other stories, you know. Uh, or start with the story of Gene Wolfe, the, uh, yeah. the, collection, the large collection. Well, see, no, I don't even, don't start with the best of Gene Wolfe. Sorry, no. I love the best of Gene Wolfe, but I don't want to give someone, this is the, the one of the attractions to me, and maybe me alone, of original format collections. And a great example here is James Tiptree Jr. James Tiptree published four or five original collections during her lifetime, right? Yeah. And they're probably, I'm going to guess, 80,000 word books. And they can contain a, you know, combination of the very best of her work and some average work that was available at that time to complete the book. You know, it's a variety. However, what it's not is it's not intimidating. It's 80,000 words worth of reading. The Island of Dr. Okay, Death and Other Stories, uh, Book of Death, Endangered Species, much less of a... I mean, when you turn around and say, here is you know, the, the collected short fiction of Kurt Vonnegut Jr. in one volume, and it's as big as your head, right? Well, you know, yeah. I don't even know where to start. I can't read that. I mean, I don't deny, for example, and it's also a complete cheat in response to a question, I have to say, reading the best of J.G. Ballard, everyone should do it. Great book. Spectacular book. Mm-hmm. I asked what was the best short story collection of all time. David Pringle, formerly editor of Indizone, popped up and said the best of J- oh, sorry, sorry, the, the collected stories of J.G. Ballard. I'm going, yeah, but that's sneaking an entire career into one, one set of covers. Vermilion Sands, though, is a spectacular collection. And it's only like itty-bitty. You can pick it up and try a little bit of J.G. Ballard. Well, but it's also a fairly early collection. My argument is this. Whenever I tell people to read a book of short stories, um, which I've never done in my life now that I think about it, uh, but if I were to tell somebody to read a book of short stories, I would tell them to read it the same way I tell them to read an anthology. Flip through it until you find something you like. Don't feel that you have to read all of it. Don't feel that you have to read the first story. I do this with Year's Best Anthologies. I've done it with my classes when I've taught Year's Best Anthologies. I don't know what individual readers are going to respond to. Uh, There may be a Gene Wolfe story. Uh, There's one I'm trying to, I'm I'm blanking on the title now, but there's a very mysterious one, um, which I love. Which one? Well, yeah, there it's, not, it's the only really mysterious Gene Wolfe story there is, of course. Um, and yeah. I probably wouldn't tell a novice wanting to know about Gene Wolfe uh, to start, to, to start yeah. with that story. I might tell them to start with Seven American Nights. I might tell them uh, to start with the first story in The Fifth Head of Cerberus, which is... I can't remember which one it was. Uh, but... Are we thinking too hard? Are we trying too hard for that recommendation? You know, rather than trying to nail the landing 
isn't it better to sort of say to, you know, a new reader, whoever whoever they are, you know, someone who's, you know, sort of 25, you stumble on the, in, in a bar and they're talking to you because they have, you know, all their friends have abandoned them for a minute, they've got no other choice. And they happen because for no reason you can imagine to say, what's a good short story collection I could read, right? And uh-huh. you're, you immediately think, you know, I must land, you know, stick the landing here, come up with something that's all-time classic that will change this person's life. Okay? Or you could not. You could just say, you know what? There's a batch, Jeffrey Ford's a great writer. There's a batch of books yeah. you, you, you could read. Why don't you pick up The Empire of Ice Cream? That's a great collection. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to recommend a particular story unless you ask me to. Just, just go try it. Same for, you know, Lucia Shepard, fantastic. Go read The Ends of the Earth. Yes, there's a, right. a best of that's thicker than my head, but go read Ends of the Earth. Great book. Harlan Ellison, his collections are all a mess. Go read Deathbird Stories. Uh, not the later versions, just one you can pick up easily. Try that out. Yeah. Okay, when you say pick up easily, that seems to be the question. When you talk about things like the Island of Dr. Death and other stories and other stories or Vermilion Sands, uh, you can find them online if you want to track them down. You're not going to run across them in your local library these days. Or sadly, your local bookstore. Or your local bookstore. So you're going to have to go probably online to them. I mean, there are a few exceptions. I mean, obviously, you know, um, you'll you'll come across new release ones, you know, like shortly, you know, sort of first plug of many in the podcast, because it's now, you know, Plugtopia, this coming November at World Fantasy Convention, Small Beer Press, will be putting out Agent of Utopia, the new collection by Andy Duncan. Yes. Which will be the only collection of his in print, given that Belutha Hatchie and the Potawatomi Giant are both out of print. That's the, that's the sadness. That's what I'm talking about. So, you know, actually, I would say to everybody listening to the podcast, you know, if, if we did show notes, I'd put a, a link in the show notes that would say, go off and pre-order this now so you can have your copy. The great thing is Small Beer will get it out into the world so people will read it. You know, there's great collections out there. But, you know, that's what I can thing, say. Just pick it up. The, the thing about that is, it's, it's a great collection. I'm looking forward to it. I cannot wait to see a copy of it. Um, he's one of the few writers who I probably will have read many of the stories in the collection. But what drew you and I into, you and me, into reading Andy Duncan were in the earlier collections, the Potawatomi Giant. And, and so those collections ought to be equally available. And unfortunately, they're not. Um, the, the point about a collection, is, as I said before, there are a couple of other names I'd throw out. Um, uh, Kelly Link. You have to look at, uh, I would think, you know, uh, I, uh, stranger things happen um, because that's what draw that's what made Kelly Link who she is in the minds of her original readers. Are the stories better than the ones in later collections? No, of course they're not better. Uh, but that's that's kind of the entry level drug. Margot Lanigan's first collection in the states was I can't there was there's red spikes was or black cloud. Hmm? Was it white time? White Time was the second one, I believe. Oh, okay. Not, so was, that came before Black Juice and before Yellow Cake. Uh, Black Juice, I think, was the first one that I read. Mm-hmm. And that's White Time came. Black Juice, I believe, is the one that had Singing My Sister Down. Mm-hmm. And that's another good example. Is there a story, you mentioned Seven American Nights. If somebody wanted to find a way into Margot Lanigan, you'd almost have to tell them to start with Singing My Sister Down. Yes. Um, I agree completely. I mean, in fact, this is the risk. When you've got somebody who's got a great story, I mean, I, I mean I'm not saying like, hey, 
good story, a terrific story, a genuinely great story. Absolutely. One that's going to live in the history of the field. Doesn't matter whether it's stories of your life by Ted Chang or whether it's whatever else it's going to be. In, you know, is that where you start with? You start, because, you know, on one hand, like if you say to someone, go read Sing My Sister Down, and you uh-huh. will know that you want to read Margot Lanigan. Does she have a second story of that magnitude? Probably not that reputation. She writes extremely well, and not often enough, Margot, if you're listening, please write more. But yes. that story particularly resonated with the world. Stories of my life, of your life, particularly resonated with the world. Was outstanding, you know. Um, is that where you start with your recommendations? Um, I probably would. I mean, I, I think these are classic stories. I don't think that all the stories are like those. I think, for example, if, uh, you know, you, you might want to, a, a lot of people do this. A lot of people I've talked to will start reading a short story or two and they say, I want to read a novel. So they'll go, maybe in the case of Mark, I would go straight from uh, Singing My Sister Down to Tender Mercies, which mm-hmm. is a very different kind of story. And mm-hmm. one which is a kind of refinement of techniques that she developed in many, many earlier stories. Um, so I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure that I would um, recommend that a person go on from that story to read everything by that writer, because as I've said, there are stories by all of these writers uh, in the same collections that I absolutely fall in love with, and other stories that I bounce off of, and maybe in many cases come back to later when I realize yeah. what the grammar yeah. of the story is. There are writers, uh, and the, the, to me the most interesting writers, are people like Margot Lanigan and Kelly Link and Jeffrey Ford and Andy Duncan, who to some extent invent their own grammar of telling stories. And part of what the advantage is of reading a number of stories by these writers is you begin to learn that grammar. You begin to learn, in the case of Lanigan, that she's going to make up words that sound as though they ought to be words and you know what they mean even though you know they really aren't words anyway. Which is much harder to do than it appears. If anybody else tried to do that, it would not work. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very distinct voice. That's the other thing. That's the other thing about these writers that I think are uh, seductive. Uh, they all have a distinctive voice. You could, I could read probably a paragraph of Margot Lanigan or Kelly Link or Andy Duncan or Jeffrey Ford and have a pretty good guess as to who wrote it. Mm. Yes. Yeah, I mean, and, and, when I think about it, that's what I saw in the... Uh, Andy Duncan, Howard Waldrop, Ellen Clay, just Joe Lansdale kind of grouping. They're quite distinctive in their, their, their writing for it. Shepard was, Lucia Shepard was very distinctive. Tiptree yeah. was quite distinctive. Wolf is quite distinctive. Mm-hmm. Here's a question, though. What happens, I mean, you talk about people reading, earlier talk about, you know, people reading novellas as a way of getting a feel for uh, a novelist's work. Uh, you've talked here with short story collections about people reading short stories as a way of getting a feeling for their work. What about when there's a real dichotomy and they're not alike? You know, I've got a number of writers whose short fiction I love and whose novels I can't read. I'm trying to think if I can think of examples. Lafferty, I can't read Ari Lafferty's novels. I love his short fiction. Uh, um, I struggled with Avram Davidson's novels compared to a short fiction. Okay, uh, Avram Davidson I can understand because Avram Davidson, both, both, it's interesting you mentioned two writers who essentially write versions of tall tales. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in Avram Davidson, the tall tale out of the Jewish tradition, and R.A. Lafferty, it's the tall tale out of the American folk tale, Oklahoma, and partly Native American. Uh, I read, it turns out I read a few R.A. Lafferty novels 
when I was selecting one, which will be in eventually the Library of America, 1960s volume, which was Past Master, which is not the most characteristic of his novels. Uh, and it's one that very much appealed, frankly, to the literati at the Library of America because it has this utopian critique of bringing Sir Thomas More back into the future to solve problems. And it turns out it's very funny, but it's not its not the kind of intense involvement that you get with the short fiction. My favorite Lafferty stories are still very short. I, mm-hmm. the, the first Lafferty, I, I remember to this day, the first Lafferty story I ever read. And um, it was... No, I don't remember. I'm blanking on the title now completely. Um, it was Enter Urban Queen. Great story. Great story. Great story. It was one of the great alternate alternate histories, which is possibly even more relevant today than it was when it was published because it was about the internal combustion engine ruining the atmosphere and so forth. And he was... Uh, I, I had never read anything like this. I went back and found other stories by him. I don't know how long it was before I found a collection. Uh, but... But that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. One story where you think this is so utterly intriguing um, that I want to find other stories. And none of the other stories are anything like Enter Urban Queen. No. Uh, But that's not the point. The point is there's a voice there. There's a very distinctive voice there, which is pretty much there in all of his short fiction. It's there but somewhat diluted in the novels because the novels he has to make room for plot. And he was never very interested in plot. That was one of his uh, things. <laughs> Made some writers, some readers bounce off of him, I'm afraid. But is, is there an example of a writer that you decided you have to read this person on the basis of reading one story? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the greatest anthology in the history of my life right, mm-hmm. is Michael Bishop's Light Years and Dark. Ah. Michael Bishop's Light Years and Dark introduced me to at least six or eight writers that I went on to love their work. So uh-huh. when I read Kate Wilhelm's Strangeness, Charm, and Spin, which appears in Light Years and Dark, I had not read her work at all. I had to go and read more Kate Wilhelm because of that. So I had, I'd never read Howard Waldrop before that. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to go and read more Howard Waldrop because I was compelled. It was that engaging. I mean, yeah. I took this book, I read this book, and then I went and I, you know, I, I ordered Kate Wilhelm books. I ordered Howard Waldrop books. I actually had not read Ursula Le Guin before I read that book. Hmm. You know, so there was this array of, uh, that's where I read Lafferty for the first time. Nor Limestone Islands appears in that book. Mm-hmm. And I was compelled. I, I was completely engaged by this strange, weird writer and this story that he had told, such as Nor Limestone's Islands is, and then I was sucked in through other means as well. But yeah, so I've absolutely come across a number of times stories where I just, I really like, I I have to find more. And most of these stories... Go ahead, go ahead and finish your thoughts. I don't know how people who read Ted Chang for the first time end up feeling when they realize there's like one collection. Um, well, reading Ted Chang is a, is a lesson in patience, uh, which is, uh, you wait for the next story and it's, it's never disappointing. Uh, and, and, and I remember the first time I read a Ted Chang story, I don't know which one it was. Uh, it may very well have been story of your life, but it was that sort of thing with the exception, with the possible exception of Kate Wilhelm, who is probably the most, um, 
professionally accomplished of all the writers we've talked about. She could write mysteries. She could write science fiction. She could write uh, mainstream stories. Uh, she was... She, uh, every, everyone else in this list except her has a very distinctive and unique voice. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not saying that she doesn't have a, 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 a persuasive voice. I'm saying that when you mention people like Howard Waldorf, we've talked about Andy Duncan, we've talked about mm. um, Ellen Clagis and, 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 and Margot Lanigan and uh, Kelly Link. Um, all these people have very, and, and Ted Chiang, have very distinct voices. Again, you read a Ted Chiang story, and it may be a story about Babylonian mythology, and three paragraphs in, okay, this is a Ted Chiang story because he's working things out with a hyper logic that is not normal for fiction. Possibly so. Can I just, by, by the way, just t- take a moment out to gloat and to say thank you to somebody on the podcast? Oh. You hear me fistling? I'm fistling. That's what my mother calls it. Okay. What I got in the mail this week. I'm holding this up to camera viewers. This is the signed limited edition of Stories in your, of Your Life and Other Stories by Ted Chang. This comes in this glorious, beautiful edition with his die-cut jacket and everything that was sent to me by my friend Bill Schaefer at Subterranean Press, who just published this book. And if you're lucky enough, you should race out and try and get a copy. I guess, I guess, I guess, I guess Bill's not my friend, but that's okay. Hi, Bill. Uh, Bill be in touch. Friend. I mean, he was my friend uh, before he sent me the, uh, a copy of Stories of Your Life. I know. Printed in Bill, Bill, Bill is head. one. Of, it, it's a terrific book, and this is this is a book that will not die. This is the third incarnation of it because there was the original tour book which had a cover on it that I know Ted did not like. There was the Small Beer Press edition, and now mm-hmm. there's this. Ted, by the way, I should mention, uh, by way of plugging something, uh, is one of a handful of science fiction writers that is appearing occasionally on a documentary series here in the States on yep. a network called James Cameron's Story of Science Fiction. I'm in it. Um, I'm not. It's... No, you're not. There's only been one episode. Well, first of all, they're not going to fly you to New York for a week. They from where you were the brains in the outfit, didn't they? <laughs> right. They had no. Um, it's an interesting show because I, I, I want to give people a little bit of insight into what into it. If, if there's only one episode is aired so far, I've only seen one episode. I don't know if I'm I'm in any more episodes than this one. But they did talk to Ted Chang, to Nora Jemison to Nadia Korofor, to Nalo Hopkinson, to Annalee Newitz, uh, as well as to the people who were highlighted in the show, or people like Steven Spielberg and, uh, and, and Ridley Scott and Sigourney Weaver and uh, so forth and so on. So it's, it's an interesting, there's an interesting tension in the production of this, which I can give people a little background on. It seemed to me that the network probably wanted a clip show of really cool scenes from science fiction movies yeah. and talking to Ridley Scott and talking to um, um, the other directors that he talks to uh, is probably the key of the story, the key to the series. But I was told by the production company that Cameron, who actually grew up a genuine science fiction fan, wanted the literature to be represented. Mm-hmm. So there is some discussion of H.G. Wells. Uh, there is some discussion of the film Arrival, for example, after which they talked to Ted about the story and what he wanted to do in the story, and he's very articulate about it. Yep. So, there, so people who are concerned about the, 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 the show being a uh, highlight special effects reel of science fiction movies, there's a bit of that, but there's more substantive discussion than you might expect. 
correct. And uh, they interviewed a lot of people at great length uh, for whatever sound bites we end up having in the series. Cool. It does sound interesting, of course. Out, out here in the Antipodes, we don't have it yet. No, it's a problem. It's a six-week series which just started here on this past Monday and will be on for another six weeks. I don't know what else is in it. I've only, uh, I only know what I said, some of which was embarrassing, so I hope it doesn't make it to the screen. <laughs> well, let me segue to one of two questions I still want to ask, since this is very much a pickup show, and probably next week we will find some radiant guests to give us focus. But um, first of all, what are you reading? Um, I've got a whole bunch of stuff here. One of the things I'm reading now, and we talked about old science fiction versus new science fiction, and there's some writers who seem to sort of have a, a, a foot in both worlds. I'm reading a collection of um, James Patrick Kelly stories. Oh, yeah. um, the um, Promise of Space, yeah. which, uh, which is very... I mean, Kelly, to me, is a very interesting writer because he's a very if you can use the word, kind of postmodern science fiction writer. He knows his way around science fiction. He can write responses, you know, think like a dinosaur is in a sense, you know, his response to uh, the Tom Goodman story, The Cold Equations. Uh, but he also writes very mainstream stories with altered by science fiction. But the story could have been written without the science fiction. The story of The Promise of Space is one example of that. The Promise of Space is basically about a woman talking to her brain-damaged husband. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a story that could have been in The New Yorker. Uh, the brain damage has to do with being in outer space. could have been caused by any number of other things. The science fiction element really isn't that. The science fiction element is he has this augmented memory. So, yeah. in other words, he's, he's taken a mainstream story and added a couple of science fiction conceits to it. Um, and he, he's, he's done this quite a bit, and it makes for an interesting kind of uh, short story because it's a short story that would work without the science fiction, but usually works better with the science fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got that. Okay, another one I've got, which I think is a very strange book so far, is Lavi Tidhar's middle school novel, Candy, which, first of all, middle school is... We don't. I don't usually read middle school novels, mm -hmm. um, and I'm. I've had people explain. I've had people who know the field very well. I've had Sharon November and uh, explain to me, and Ellen Clages explained to me, and Jane Yolen explained to me how middle school is different from children's literature, and is on the one end, and is different from young adult on the other end. Um, and I still okay. All I can think of is this: this is twelve year olds. This is fiction for twelve year olds. And it's about a dystopian world in which candy is outlawed. And <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking: Are we moving? Are we moving dystopia down to the middle grade level now? Are we going to have dystopian primers, Dick and Jane, you know, in the Hunger Games? Um, it's, it's, but it's 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 a delightful book so far. I'm I'm, I'm just part way into it. Um, some other things I'm thinking about, I don't know. You mentioned the Nick Mamatas novel, which isn't coming out till August, but I'm looking for... I have a copy of The People's Republic of Everything. I'm looking forward to that. Um, I'm looking forward to John Varley's Irontown Blues, which I just uh, downloaded. I've got a copy um, through NetGalley, I believe. Okay, uh, cool. So, I'm interested in that so, one. Um, it's been a long time since I've read a Varley book, and this is sort of... The Return to His Eight Worlds. I think it's a, he had a short story out that was actually an oddity because 
it had been frozen in the last Andrews Visions for a few decades. But uh. I think before that, the last major work had been Steel Beach, in fact, in 1993. Yeah, and, Hugo, so. yeah and, and Varley was, you know, for a long time, Varley was the heir apparent to Heinlein. Mm. Um, and it, it, it seemed like, okay, this is a person who's going to move Heinlein into the next generation. And, and to some extent, Steel Beach does that. Uh, but you're right, that's a long time ago. I also kind of feel like he, probably unfairly because I, I have this odd slanted view because we live in this bubble of people who are paying attention to right now, that he's one of those people who, I mean, in the, in the late 70s, early 80s, felt like a huge name. Mm-hmm and now feels a bit like someone who everything got passed by. You know, I mean, he got distracted off into making, you know, that movie Millennium, which was so terrible and kept him from writing for a long time. And the post-Millennium stuff, I mean, I know Steel Beach was post-Millennium, and it was up for Hugo, but um, post that, I kind of feel like the field sort of stopped paying attention to him. He was a sidebar, a footnote at that point, which would have to be a very difficult thing to, to sort of deal with. And I don't really know how I feel about it. It'll be, as I say, I, I do, if I can find the time, because I mean, I've got a batch of things sitting on my Kindle to read, Gary, yeah. and whether I get around to that one, I don't know. But I would like to, you know, because, I mean, I know you've read it, but I'm reading Cat Valenti's Space Opera. Mm-hmm. Which, look, I've got to say, is a ridiculous amount of fun. It's a real confection of a book. She's having... There's a thing about reading a book um, where you just... First of all, you can tell that the author had so much fun reading the book, and your hope going in is that the fun conveys itself on the page, uh, which I think it does. I mean, the, 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 we, we, I think we mentioned earlier, space, space Opera is a combination of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and the Eurovision Song Contest, yeah. which sounds, it's, 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 in, in a way, it's a one-joke book, but the, some of the jokes are really, really good. <laughs> so I've got that, and I want to read that. I've got a new Nydia Korfor story that's hidden in an anthology called Lagos Noir that I want to read. Uh-huh. Uh, I've got Naomi Novik's next book, Spinning Silver. This is the next book that's in the same kind of space as Spinning Gold, I think, or whatever it was, one that won the, the, all the awards the other year. And I've got Jeff Ford's new book, Ahab's Return, that I want to read. So they all look like fun, if I can find something. You've got Ahab's Return already? Yeah, yeah, I've got an e-copy of it. Uh. Well, going. Uh, you don't have it. I don't have that, Jeff. If you're listening to us, I know Jeff. You listen to us occasionally. Get on it. Nobody loves um, you, baby. <laughs> uh, let me go further into the fall. Okay, two books I'm looking forward to in the fall. Uh, one is uh, September book is which I do now have a I have copies of both of these now. Is uh, Charlie Jane Anders' Rock Manning Goes for Broke, which sounds to me like somebody having fun, much in the same way that Catherine Valenti had. Uh, with space opera, it looks like I'm just very, very excited about that book. And a book which is probably more of interest to those of us who are sort of academically interested in the history of the field is Alec Navalo Lee's. The full title is astounding: John W. Campbell, Isaac Asimov, Robert A. Heinlein, L. Ron Hubbard, and the Golden Age of Science Fiction. Okay, okay, okay. And it's a joint. First of all, first of all, this is an actual writer. This is not an academic writing. Uh, there have been histories of astounding. There have been. This is a kind of joint biography of Campbell, Asimov, Heinlein, and Hubbard. And the Hubbard part is by far the most interesting. Most of the rest of the stuff is familiar to to many of us. But yeah. he's gone and looked. He's gone and looked at the correspondence between Campbell, Asimov, 
Heinlein, Hubbard, all this sort of thing. He's finding out stuff. I'm learning stuff about all these people I didn't know, even stuff that I didn't know from reading uh, the huge, monumental, two-volume Patterson biography of Heinlein. Is there stuff and, there that wasn't in that book by Panshin? You know, he seemed to write a lot about that kind of stuff. Panshin has a lot of, but uh, I don't think even Panshin had uh, access to all the letters that are now archived in university libraries. Okay. Um, uh, the, the thing is, what fascinates me is that this is, this is an interesting scholarly problem. You have people like Campbell Asimov and Heinlein, at least, who are very conscious about presenting a certain public persona. Um, and, and that concern has been continued by their heirs, in the case yeah. of Asimov and Heinlein, at least. And Hubbard, of course, that, that persona has been sort of cast in bronze or cast in silver or cast in uh, unobtainium by the Church of Scientology, so that you, it's, it's very difficult to find out real, the real history of this. And I, and I think he's found out some stuff about it. But more important, um, I've read a couple of short stories by him, and it's, he's, he's, good. He's, 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 he's some good stuff in Illinois. He's really good out He writes a skilled narrative. Uh, so, very good. So I, I mean, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not aware of there being a novel around yet, but uh, some of the stuff that he's had in uh, uh, Analog has been some of the best stuff in Analog in the last 10 years. Um, and then my quick other unfair question before we sign off. If you had to pick today, what's your favorite book? My favorite book? Mm, if you had to pick a book now, right now, this moment, what's your favorite book, Gary? Okay, I will, I will tell you the title that came to my mind as soon as you asked the question. But it was a title that was my favorite book when I was 15. That's when we when last really truly had favorite books, Gary. But yeah, and it was it was the only book that I read every year for like five years in a row, and it was T. H. White's The Once and Future King. And why The Once and Future King? I didn't. Okay, now keep in mind, I did not. This this is the novel which turned into uh, a couple of Disney movies. It turned into sure. the musical Camelot and so forth. I read it before I read The Lord of the Rings. And it seemed to me that this brought together all the best parts of the Arthurian myth. It's pure fantasy. I mean, it, it, it's fantasy, but it's fantasy which is derived from uh, the actual Arthurian legends, from, from the sources, uh, from Mallory and from all, all the other classic sources. And it was just a beautifully written novel, which now that I think about it, was actually kind of four short novels sort of strung together. And it fascinated me with Arthurian history. It fascinated me with the idea of fantasy. Uh, it uh, seemed to me to be written in a kind of luminous prose. Later, when I saw Tolkien do this, at his best, he can do this. Uh, he, can, he can get a bit bombastic from time to time. Uh, and I read other T.H. White novels at the time. Uh, so, so that really was one of the influential books of my childhood, and I would love to get back and reread it sometime. Somewhere in my storage locker, I have that paperback that I read 50, 60 years ago. So, The Once and Future King... Based on, I mean, I don't know how many years it's been since you last read it, but you've obviously read it a number of times. Yes. Timeless or old? I would guess if I went back to look at it today, uh, I mean, I, since then I've read things like The Mists of Avalon. For whatever problems Bradley may have had, apart from that novel, it's a very interesting way to rethink the Arthurian legends. I suspect if I went back to, to that novel, I would find it a kind of um, English gentleman's take on 
gender and power relations. Uh, I probably would look at it in much the same way that Kids Johnson looked at Kenneth Graham's The Wind in the Willows, a book that you loved, but now you realize, okay, there probably were some serious problems with it, um, and I probably would see those if I went back and looked at it today. Yeah, that makes me think of something else um, that we will not uh, get into it in the four minutes remaining to our, our standard hour, and that is that a lot is made of the importance of seeing yourself or people like you in stories. Mm-hmm. What about stories where there just isn't anybody much like you, but it still seem to be really popular? I mean, I suppose we're supposed to identify in, say, The Lord of the Rings with the hobbits, I suppose. I suppose so. You know, they never felt much like people like me. But, I think one of the secrets of novels like Lord of the Rings is, yeah, we, we tend to identify with the hobbits, but we tend to aspire to Aragorn. <laughs> you, have, you have both people you identify with and aspirational people you identify with. Fair enough. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I was, I'll tell you, I don't want to be one of those damned elves. I'm not interested in being an elf. No, no, they're bastards. But my, my other question, I guess, which ties in with the with your favorite book question is, do you think, it occurs to me now to ask, that the, the book that was a favorite of yours when you were in that, let's say, 10 to 25 age group, is that any other favorite book you have in your life is ever a book you love as much? I'm putting this very mangled way, but, you know, it strikes to me that there's a, there's a way you read when you're first learning about the world, when you're first reading and you, you're mm-hmm. immersing into it, and you come across a true favorite, and you imprint on it. I mean, I know people read Lord of the Rings every year. They imprint it when they were, oh, yeah. you know, children. Do you think you ever find another favorite like that? I don't know. It's, 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 it's because one of, the, one of the things that complicates that question is that I have to read stuff. Um, I have, in other words, I have to read stuff to review. I have stuff that comes in the mail and so forth. Do I find a book that really sort of blows me away? Uh, sometimes I do. Uh, one of them was a Le Guin novel, and it was not The Left Hand of Darkness. It was The Dispossessed, because The Dispossessed struck me. I was much older when I read that than when I read The Once and Future King. Yeah. It struck me that, okay, this is, this is politically sophisticated and has really interesting characters. One of the ways I identify novels that struck, struck me at the time is I can remember the characters. Shebeck is one of the great characters yeah. in science fiction, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So that struck me as being a great book at the time, and I've not been disappointed when I went back and looked at it. Um, there are probably some more recent than that, but because that book is, what, almost 50 years old now. Mm-hmm. But before, we, before, before, I, before I make more of a fool of myself, you've gotten away with asking a question which you have not answered on your own behalf at this I know, point. I know, I know. What is your favorite? When I was a kid, my favorite book was Citizen of the Galaxy. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly between ages of 7 and 15. I read that book over and over and over again. I mean, admittedly, I had one small bookshelf full of books, so I read all the books over and over and over again. But there was something about the character of Thorby Baslam. There was something about the way the tale was engaging. There was something about, frankly, my own absolute shuttered worldview about gender and politics that allowed me to ignore the complete absence of women in Citizen of the Galaxies that didn't bother me because mm-hmm. I was a boy reading a boy's story, if you like, though I would not phrase it that way now, even though I just have. Um, and even when I went back and reread it a few years ago, I found that it still was you know, pretty readable. So the, number that, people I, yeah. boy, the number of people I know who have the same experience with, with Heinlein, including my partner Dale here, uh, have all had that same kind of 
account. But my, unfortunately, I didn't come to Heinlein Juveniles until I was older, so they didn't affect me so much when I was a child. Mm-hmm. I didn't read them all, but I read them all and thought these these would have been really great when I was twelve, but I was not twelve when I was reading them. So I mean, Citizen of the Galaxy, I mean, Down Below Station was an enormous favorite book of mine. I, mean, I read that seven mm-hmm. times in one year. Which I've never done with any other book in my life. I mean talking about books that you reread, there's a different way of looking at it because there may be books I read a, a book I've read Several times is Joe Haldeman's Forever War, mm-hmm. uh, which may I still believe to this day is the best science fiction war novel, uh, and it's a terrific time dilation novel in all kinds of ways. And there's a world I, was, I, was, I, I know he, he's a friend of mine. I spent some time with him recently, but but the idea of uh, a world in which heterosexuality is, uh, is is in the minority. This is 19. This is. Forty-some years ago, he was writing this, and it's, it's not just the warfare stuff. There's a very carefully imagined future, and it just opened my mind in all kinds of ways. And I read that when I was an adult. And I guess there was a handful of books around then for me as well. I mean, that would be in the running. I mean, uh, Mythigo Wood, Sleeping in yeah. Flame, those books, Cider House Rules, which I read around that. I feel like I read around mm-hmm. that time. All had an enormous impact on me, you know. Um, Looking back, books that I thought were really important to me that proved to be really unimportant to me, like you know, a lot of the science fiction that I read proved to be much more ephemeral than I thought. Dune is a book that I fell probably permanently out of love with, though that I used to love. Um, I try at one point I loved Ringworld and I loved The Moat in God's Eye, um, uh-huh. and now I can't say that I do, you know. So, yeah, this is this may be a thing about. Big concept novels. I read Ringworld, and I went out and looked at Bob Shaw's Orbitsville after that because mm-hmm. this is yeah. Ringworld on up. Uh, and, 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 and so I looked up all the Dyson Sphere stuff. And at some point, I realized I was not in love with the novel. I was in, I was in love with the idea. Uh, and, and that does happen sometimes. Yeah. So the, 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 there is the possibility of uh, just being blown away by a terrific idea that uh, you realize later. It's a terrific idea, but the novel was fairly humdrum. My classic example of somebody I really loved when I was a teenager and still respect was Hal Clement. Hal mm-hmm. Clement had the greatest, most mind-blowing ideas full of the most cardboard characters, I'm afraid. <laughs> yes. And, and then you know, sometimes you read something that you enjoy, and I guess you read it with your eyes wide open, which is important. I was, I've just been editing columns for the next issue of uh, Locus, and Liz Burke, our Irish correspondent, reviews an S.M. Sterling novel uh-huh. and both enjoys and is uncomfortable with the book. And I understand that it even comes in, I mean, you mentioned you read it, you have a copy of Charlie Andrews' uh, Rock Man uh-huh. Goes for Broke. And there's something about that title that's inherently retro, right? You know, it's this kind of adventure. a manly man having an action adventure, even though that's not the story. Yeah. It sounds like it. And sometimes you, you, I will pick up a book that I would characterize as a dumb space opera with a particular kind of chiseled action character in it and enjoy it even though I know it's not very good. Enjoy it even though I know it's problematic. Oh, yeah. Because there's uh, still some kind of energy in there that I respond to. Well, one of the things that made me like Harry Harrison, of all people, Harry Harrison, I think, is a very underrated writer in many ways, yeah. uh, partly because he was a satirist, partly because he was 
essentially a socialist anarchist kind of writer in a writing in a hard SF context that didn't necessarily welcome his views. Uh, and I'm not just thinking of make room, make room, but but his parody responses to Heinlein, like Build the Galactic Hero or Star Smashers of the Galaxy Rangers, are very funny and um, and not very serious, but. Yeah, again, I don't know if the, I don't know if I'd find them as funny today as I did yeah. then. But it's, it's, it struck me that, that there are a lot of people, for example, who are who are very fond of um, of the movie uh, Galaxy Quest. Yes, and I everybody who's seen that movie, I said you should have been reading Harry Harrison. He he was doing this years <laughs> before. I will tell you one more novel, one more uh, secret. Now that we're now that I'm halfway through my bottle of wine and you've got me thinking about this. I will tell you the one novel that both made me want to be a writer and made me realize I could not be a writer of fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was Joseph Heller's Catch-22. Mm-hmm. As I read through that and I thought, I love... It, it's Okay, that is up there with my favorite novel, now that I think about it. They didn't read it until much later. I've read it several times. I've read it aloud once. Um, and I thought, this is utterly hilarious it's utterly bizarre in a strange way it's an alternate universe novel about a world war ii seen through the eyes of a character that we would now see as a philip k dick paranoiac mm-hmm. uh, he believes that uh, he believes the germans are trying to kill him and his, his commander says well they're trying to kill all of us and he says so uh, <laughs> he, he absolutely has a point and then I realized how difficult it must be to write a novel that sustained and that funny and that heart-wrenching all at the same time. So the first time, and I actually took a class from uh, Joseph Heller when I was in Kansas. And he seemed to be an ordinary guy. He, he seemed to be a guy who worked for ad agencies in New York, and he was kind of a New York literati kind of person. But... When I realized then how much work went into making this thing that looked like so much fun, I thought, okay, I can think of a few jokes that would make up 1% of this novel, but I couldn't sustain this for, for the length of a, of a whole novel. So. Well, on that cheery note, we should probably note that you know, sort of we're, we're past our hour. We're, we're in early May. We're going to be talking to some interesting people in the coming weeks. It's not actually that far away. I mean, I've got a trip, got a trip to Ireland first, Gary. But um, not that far away to Worldcon when we'll be meeting in San Jose with everybody. And so we should, we, speaking of Worldcon, we should remind people that you go voting open this week. Uh, the finalist lists are out. Uh, you should cast your vote before whenever the deadline is. I don't know when it is. Yeah, you can do it online. The Hugo packet either is available or should be available. It's one of those things we'd put in show notes if we, if we were organized. And yeah. also I'd point out that the World Fantasy Award nominations are still open, so you should do that. And we must be coming up on the Nebula Award weekend sometime fairly soon. And also, hey, the Locus Awards shortlist, finalists, the 10 shortlist, people, the 10 people. The, the Locus Awards have, like the, 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 you need to go to the Locus Mag website, 10 finalists in each category, and I like that. I like having 10 finalists. Uh, you, uh, I, I can understand there are reasons for not liking having 10 finalists, but my reasons for liking having 10 finalists is that I know I will have read a good chunk of them. And okay. I don't always know that when you've got five finalists, as in the Hugo. Fair enough. Well, there's a lot of words to pay attention to. 
there's a lot of books coming up. There's a handful of books we haven't mentioned coming out in the second half of the year that I'm desperate to read. I'm thinking of you, Red Moon. Um, uh-huh. And lots of conventioning. And I'm going to see you for, for a while. I'm going to see you twice this year, which is not usual. That'll be sunny San Jose and less sunny Baltimore. And we will have fun. We will have dinner and all will be good. And we will po- cast our pod many times. But until then, I think it might be time to wind up this 968th episode. It's, it's, I thought it was 1127, but who's keeping count? A billion to one. A billion to one, absolutely. 117. All right, we will talk okay. next week. And, and, and until then, this has been, once again, for the 117th time, the Cood Street Podcast. <laughs>